You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for um, the gift that it is to gather and to learn from you. Lord, we pray now that as we open your word together, that you would speak to us. Pray that you would give us ears to hear you, hearts to love you, um, and that our lives would be shaped by you, Father. Um, We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so welcome to class one of four where we're going to be looking at shadows of Jesus in the Old Testament. My hope for this class is that we all learn to look for Jesus in the Old Testament. We learn to see what it looks like to read the Bible Christocentrically, which really just means how does this text point us to the coming of Jesus Christ? And thank you, Kevin. Truth be told, This class is largely inspired by a children's book. This book called I See Jesus is by Bible teacher Nancy Guthrie. She mainly writes for adults, but she just wrote this children's book. And I saw it recently when I was at a conference and I love love it because every story goes through an Old Testament story. And look how cute the little illustrations shows you a literal shadow of Jesus in the Old Testament. So that is a lot of what we're going to be doing throughout these next four weeks, looking for shadows of Jesus in the Old Testament. And when we do so, we're reminded that the Bible really is one sweeping big story. From Genesis to Revelation, all of the Bible is about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we're either looking forward to it in the Old Testament or we're looking back to it in the New, but it's all about Jesus that culminates in this one long story all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And so my hope is that over the next four weeks, you and I together will become more curious readers of the Old Testament, more careful readers, because I don't know about y'all, but the Old Testament still really scares me. I find it very overwhelming. I find it really confusing. But hopefully, as we look for Jesus in these pages, we're able to get more curious about, okay, where is the need for divine grace? And where is the provision of that grace? How, how is Jesus like Moses? How is Jesus a better Adam? How is Jesus the true and greater David? Um, so I hope we'll just have some fun together exploring. Hello, Nye. good to see y'all. Um, exploring and looking for Jesus in the pages of the Old Testament. All right. And today we are going to be in the story of Noah. But before we cover Noah, I want us to start in the very beginning with the very first shadow we see of Jesus in Genesis chapter 3. This is what's called, you're going to learn a fun theological term today, proto-evangelion, which just means the first gospel. So we're in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve have just eaten of the apple, rebelled against God. Things have gone very poorly. And God, of course, steps in with his plan of redemption. And here is what God says to the serpent. So this is Genesis 3, verses 14 through 15. God says, because you have done this to the serpent, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. All right, so just mere moments after sin has entered the world, God makes a sweeping promise to Adam and Eve. 
and he says, there's going to be enmity, there's going to be strife between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent, but ultimately what's going to happen? Which offspring is going to prevail? Exactly, the seed of the woman. of the woman. Exactly, yes. So just three chapters into the Bible, we get this first major shadow of Christ, an offspring of the woman who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent, obviously on the cross, defeating sin, death, and evil. And so we have the privilege of knowing that this offspring is ultimately Jesus. But the original hearers and readers of the Bible would have been waiting with bated breath for this offspring. Who is he? What's he going to be like? When's he going to come? How are we going to know it's him? Uh, and so this is just an example of one of the many shadows in the Old Testament that gives way to the substance of Christ. And it's against this backdrop that we want to focus in on our story today. God makes a promise to send a rescuer, and every story that we see in the, New, in the Old Testament will get us a little bit closer to the realization of that promise. All right, so with all that being said, now we're going to move on to our boy Noah, who we're looking at today in the story of Noah and the ark. But before we read from God's Word, let's read from our I See Jesus book. It's very, very short, I promise, but I just love the way she puts it. Okay, so this is what Nancy Guthrie says about Noah and the ark. Noah built the ark for his family to hide in so they would be safe in the storm of God's punishment for sin. In the shadow of the ark, I see Jesus, the ark of safety. All who hide in Jesus are safe from God's punishment for sin. And look, there's, there's your shadow. How precious, huh? Like a little hide and seek. All right, so now let's read from the actual word of God. So we do have a lot of Noah's story, and this is a whittled down version, but um, I couldn't... I, I couldn't make it any shorter. I tried. All right, so we're going to read from Genesis 6 through Genesis 9. And I will, I'll read it for us and then we'll break it down. All right, so starting in Genesis 6. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, On the day all the springs of the great deep birth forest 
burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. All right, I'm going to skip over a little bit, but you can read the flood. It's catastrophic. Everything dies. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. So moving on to Genesis 8. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out of every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, and all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Okay, so that's Noah whittled down a little bit, the story, but hopefully we get the big picture. And I'm sure this is a story that's familiar with many of us in this room. But let's do a quick recap. Okay, so there is a problem we see in the very beginning of Genesis 6. And what is that problem? Yes, every thought is wicked. Uh, Corrupt is used like four times in one sentence. Yes, things have gotten really, really bad on earth. Cain has killed Abel. A couple sentences before in Genesis 6, it's that really weird story of um, the Nephilim having sexual relations with women. It's really weird. Um, The earth has gotten very, very bad. And so what's God going to do about it? Yes, he's going to send a flood. And we'll talk about this more later. But then we're introduced to Noah. And what do we know about Noah? We know, honestly, not very much about Noah, but we do know a couple things. Verse 8, what do we know about Noah? He found favor in God's eyes. Yes, he was righteous, blameless. He walked faithfully with God. We know that um, Noah had a wife and three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. He was a father-in-law. And so, and of course, if we read on in Genesis, we, we learn that Noah wasn't all that righteous. Just like every other character of the Bible, Noah had his good days and his bad days. And he was a sinful human like you and I. But Noah was a righteous man found favor in the Lord's sight. And God has a pretty significant um, task for Noah. What what does he tell Noah to do? What are Noah's marching orders? Build an ark, ark, yes. And this is one of those times I think it's important that we pause and remember that the Bible is true and that the Bible is historically accurate. And so I have no idea how this man did it. But uh, at some point, I measured out the cubits of actually what this ark is. And it is just incredibly large. I'll find it later. But, um, oh, here it is. 440 feet by 72 feet by 43 feet. So this massive, massive, massive boat. I hope Noah had help. But not only that, he has to build the boat. And then he has to live inside of it with his family and all these animals for over a month. I just, I want to give a shout out to Noah's obedience for doing all that the Lord asked of him. And I'm just, I'm really impressed by him. Thank you, God, for Noah. All right. So Noah builds the ark, gets all of his family and all the creatures into the ark. And then what happens? Exactly. God does what God says he's going to do. Flood comes, flood wipes out everything, minus Noah and his family and these animals that are kept safe in the ark. 
The, eventually the waters recede. Noah and his family are able to exit on dry land and God establishes a covenant with Noah that he's never going to again flood the earth. And he puts what in the sky as a sign of the covenant? Exactly, yes. I wish we could have time to get into all this, but we just, we can't. All right, so here's what I hope we see today with three parts. Number one, God's gracious judgment. Number two, God's gracious redemption. And then number three, where do we find Jesus in the story? Where are the shadows of Christ in the story of Noah? All right, so starting with point number one, God's gracious judgment. Now, this might seem like an oxymoron to y'all, gracious judgment, but as we just so beautifully heard in Cameron's sermon, that's the exact opposite. God's judgment is indeed gracious because it flows from God's good and wise and faithful and loving character. Every single judgment that God makes is perfect and just, unlike the judgments that you and I make. We, we just heard again in the sermon that God is a holy God. And so God cannot let sin and corruption go unnoticed. And Melinda already pointed this out, but why does God send the flood? Does he do it just because he was bored that day? No, I mean, we see words like the human race is wicked. Every inclination of the thoughts or every inclination was evil all of the time. The earth was corrupt. The earth was full of violence. All the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So what kind of God would God be if God just sat idly by and didn't do anything about this corruption? What kind of loving heavenly parent would God be if he watched his good creation perish? And so in God's holiness, in God's gracious justice, he sends a flood. That's how his judgment takes the form of a flood. And God is going to act against this wickedness. And we're going to see that it's out of God's kindness that he does so. This is why it's no coincidence that in the New Testament, so I believe you're on the back page of your handout now, in Matthew 24, we read that Jesus compares his second coming, the day of judgment, to a flood. This is what Jesus says about that day. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will t- be taken and the other one left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill, grind, grinding with a hand mill, one will be taken and the other left. There's a lot that I don't know about that we just read in that passage, but what I do think I can say is that God's judgment will be intense. God is a holy God. God takes vengeance against sin and perfect justice. And like we see in the story, God's justice takes the form of a flood against the wickedness of creation. That's how God in his holiness has to respond to sin. But even more than that, even more than God's gracious judgment is the provision of God's gracious redemption that we see in the story through Noah. So, I mean, it's almost in the first breath, if we look in the same breath, as we look back to Genesis 6, we are told that God regrets making man. He's deeply troubled by the corruption he sees. But immediately after, we see that God has a plan in store. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. And God obviously is going to use Noah as a plan for redemption in the face of this judgment. Now, I think we need to pause and remember that 
Noah was not chosen for this task because Noah had a perfectly moral track record. Immediately after Noah gets out of the ark, do you all know what happens? He gets drunk. He gets wasted. Yes. <laughs> he, he frat parties and, uh, you know, exposes himself. It's not a great moment for Noah. So clearly, Noah was not chosen for this task because Noah was so morally upright. He was chosen because God set his favor on him. And it was an act of mercy that God used Noah to build the ark, protect, his, uh, protect Noah and his family, and protect all the animals and plants that, with, with, that went with him in the ark. Um, and here's what's cool about Noah. I, I learned this just recently doing research for this class, but a lot of commentators think of Noah as a second Adam. There's lots of language parallels we could get into, lots of similar plot lines, but look specifically with me at Genesis 8, 17 on the back of your handout. Will someone read that out loud? Mary Shelton. Um, bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on All right. So this language of multiplying, be fruitful, and increasing, what does that remind you all of? Um, exactly, yes. So Noah, in a lot of ways, is just like Adam. If Adam spearheaded the first creation, Noah is now spearheading the second creation after the flood. And again, just like the first Adam, Noah doesn't do this perfectly. But God clearly is using Noah to preserve his creation in the face of the judgment of the flood. And I think it's important for us to remember that this wasn't God's backup plan. It's not like God saw how corrupt the earth was getting and thought, Oh my gosh, no, what am I going to do? Noah, you're up. God knew from the very beginning of time that this was going to happen. And God in his mercy had a plan to use Noah to rebuild his creation through Noah and his family in the face of the flood of judgment. It was all part of God's plan of redemption that, again, runs all the way from Genesis to the end of Revelation. Uh, We see this idea reiterated in Isaiah 54. Gosh, I love this passage. This is what the prophet Isaiah says. For a brief moment, I abandoned you, but with deep compassion, I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. To me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, Yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Just such a beautiful picture of how God's justice, God's judgment is indeed real. Israel, as Isaiah is talking about in this passage, deserved God's anger. And God did, in his judgment, turn his face for a moment. But what has the last word here? The Lord's compassion the Lord's unfailing love, the Lord's everlasting kindness. That's what has the last word in this passage and in the whole passage, in the whole story of scripture. So in the ark, because God had a plan for Noah's redemption, Noah and his family are kept safe against the flood of God's judgment. They're provided for, they're protected, 
they are secure. And this leads us hopefully to our final point is where we see Jesus in this story. I know y'all are all smart men and women, so hopefully this it won't be too hard for you to see where we see the shadows of Jesus here. But let's think about this. You and I are all sinful people. We all contribute to the corruption of the world. You and I have thoughts that are evil in our heart and that are wicked. And so we stand rightly under God's justice. God has every single right to sweep all of us away in a flood if he wanted to, because again, God's a just God and he will not let sin go unpunished. But just as Noah and his family were spared in the ark against the flood of God's judgment, you and I have been spared as well. How so? Well, if you were to follow Noah's genealogy, which is very long and there are a lot of confusing names, so we're not going to look at it. But if you were to follow Noah's genealogy, anyone know who a descendant of Noah would eventually be? Exactly, yes. Another carpenter, another man who worked with wood, the true and greater Adam who ushers in God's ultimate final creation, Jesus Christ himself, who on the cross took on the full judgment of God that you and I deserve. He entered in the flood of God's wrath willingly. And unlike this flood that covered the earth, that was catastrophic, that was horrible. I mean, that's the part I skipped over, but this is pretty brutal stuff. I mean, this flood that Noah and his family endured was severe. Everything else perished. But compared to what God experienced on the cross, this flood was a day at the beach. Because on the cross, God experienced the full flood of God's judgment. He experienced separation from Christ. He experienced God's wrath poured out on him. And so because Jesus endured that for you and for me, that's how we have been spared from the judgment of Christ that you and I deserve. So in the ark of Christ, we are safe. We are secure. We are held fast against the flood of God's judgment. Praise be to God. And so that's why if you read in the New Testament, especially with Paul, language of union with Christ is really, really important. Paul will remind us that we are hidden in Christ. We are one with Christ. Christ is in us and we are in him. We are safe. We are secure. We are held fast against the flood of God's judgment. And so that all who believe in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. So just as Noah and his family were spared in the wood of the ark, you and I are spared in the wood of the cross. Again, thanks be to God. I want to end with a story real quick. Um, So I was living in Charlottesville, Virginia at the time. Let's see. This was 2018 or 17. Do you all remember when um, there was this really horrible neo-Nazi rally in Charlottesville, Virginia? Um, Were you in Virginia at that time? Oh, okay. So you remember, you remember well, a young woman was killed um, all over the drama surrounding the statue of Robert E. Lee um, in in a park in Charlottesville. But it was, it was really scary and it was really dark and it was, what happened was evil. I mean, um, this, again, a young woman was killed because of this neo-Nazi raid and it was, it was very bad. The following Sunday, my boss, Paul Walker, he gave a sermon that I had tried to find, but I, I think it's lost on the interweb somewhere. But it was an excellent sermon. 
Um, and in the sermon, he talked about how in cathedrals like ours and at um, like Christ Church in Charlottesville, if you look up, the ceiling looks like, anyone know? An ark. I had never, I had never known this before. I don't know if y'all know this, but if you look up, sure enough, in most sanctuaries, the ceiling is domed such that it feels like you're in the inside of an ark. And so in the sermon, Paul talked about how, yes, the earth is corrupt. Bad things happen. Um, young women are killed because of political uprising. People fight. Um, there's fear and there's uncertainty. But in God's body, in the church, we are safe and we are kept secured. Um, and it was such a beautiful picture because, again, I mean, it was, it really was kind of like, People were scared to go outside. People didn't know if these bad people were gonna come back. Um, the whole city was in mourning. But Paul encouraged us to lift our heads and to remind ourselves that we are in, we are safe in the Ark of Christ. Um, literally, we were safe in church, but also in a much more spiritual way, we were safe because we belonged to Jesus. And so I don't know what, what you're facing this week, but I wanna remind you to look up and to remember that whether you are physically in church or not, you belong to Christ and you're held safely and securely in him. You're held in his love and his mercy and no flood can ever touch you um, because Jesus has endured that all for you and for me. So let me pray. Um, and then we actually have time for questions. I always do this. Anytime I think that I'm going to go over, I go under, and then anytime I think that I've got plenty of time, we're here till 1130, so you just never know. Um, all right, but let me pray. Father in heaven, um, again, thank you so much for your word. Lord, thank you for your servant Noah. Um, thank you, God, that because of Noah, um, you preserved your creation, but Lord, um, most especially, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who endured the flood of God's judgment on our behalf, Lord, um, so that we might be spared. Father, we thank you for these truths and pray that you would help us walk in them today. Um, Lord, we love you and we thank you again for your son and it's in his name we pray, amen. All right, does anyone have any questions or anything that they wanna share about Noah? Any observations to make? Other times in the scripture that Noah kind of foreshadows, like Jonah mm. in the boat with the storm, and how it is only God that can quell the storm. Yeah. And then the disciples in the boat with Jesus when the storm comes. And it's Jesus through the Holy Spirit who calms mm. the storm. It's just that sort of reminder that the own that the thing over nature mm. is the creator. Oh, that's good. That's really good. Yeah. And that the same God that was capable of bringing such a catastrophic flood that took out everything is also the same God that was capable of receding the waters. He, yeah, he was sovereign over it all. It always makes me think of the waters of baptism. Mm. You're thinking like Peter. Isn't it in Peter where he talks about... Um, just like Noah was was spared in the ark, or obviously I'm, I'm not super familiar with this passage, but he compares baptism to Noah's ark. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, water is a major theme in, in Scripture. I mean, 
in the very beginning, God is hovering over the face of the waters. And um, yeah, Jonah, what else we could, I mean, we could be here all day thinking about it. In Revelation, there's no sea, no chaos, no flood. Yeah. And, you know, um, they were actually in the boat for almost a year. I mean, the storm was 40 days, but then it took forever for the water to recede. That's right. So they saw any land, and the land that they finally plopped down, God plopped them down on was the mountain. Right, so right. You know, that whole transformation, the bird, the Ten Commandments. Um, I, I just think there's so much foreshadowing. In the story that I always thought was something you you know you used to read to little babies, right? The story yeah. Of Noah. Yes, I know. Almost like the Bible has one author, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There is so much, and I wish we could have gotten into everything. I mean, I think the the image too of the rainbow is really beautiful. Um, I've heard it said that like, you know, the way a rainbow looks, it's like the bow is facing back towards God. He's the one taking on the the hurt. Um, the, the bow would be piercing towards him, but we are the ones that receive the other end of the bow. Uh, again, I don't, we might be reading too much into the Bible in that point. It could be that, you know, God just wanted to bless us with a beautiful rainbow and that that's his sign of the covenant. But I really love that. Yes, yes. And I think that's a, a lot of why the Old Testament can be really overwhelming. We think, how on earth could this God that brings a catastrophic flood be the same Jesus that puts children in his lap? And um, But it is. It's the same character all the way through. Mm-hmm. And Jesus, being God himself, knew a thing or two about justice as well. Right. Yeah, he, he got angry about sin. Yes. I think so too. Yeah, I was actually looking at that this morning because um, I, I thought that there would be a question about that. I mean, because that's an intense word he regretted. But yeah, I was just thinking about the fact that Jesus and God, they're, they, they feel things deeply. They're deeply moved. And so when they see how corrupt creation had become, um, yeah, it troubles them. They they lament over the state of humanity. But I, I think that's a beautiful character of God. Um, he's compassionate. He's not he's not a distant, cold God. He um, he hates seeing his children in corruption. So yeah, I that that I think that's a really good um, parallel there, Ben. Rebecca, I like the fact that uh, he released a dove. Oh, yeah. It could have been a pigeon or it could have been a duck, but it was a dove. Well, why do you think, yeah, why why do you think that is significant? I think that's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Mm. I think so, too. Yeah, But, yeah, I um, and again, we didn't even read that part. There was so much that I chopped out for the sake of time. But, yeah, that's a, because um, at first he releases two birds, right? Um, and in some translations it says like a raven or something. But, um it is the dove that eventually comes back with the promise that there's dry land. It's safe for you to exit. I, I, if I was Noah, one, I would be incredibly impatient. I would, you know, it's like a, 
a road trip when you just cannot wait to get out of the car, especially when you're with your family. Um, you just cannot wait. And just kidding, just kidding. Um, me neither. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, I forget where I was going with this. Oh, yes, I would be very impatient and I would be so, so scared. But to walk out again, you know, because who knows what God could do next. But Noah knew what God had told him and Noah obeyed. Um, I love that it just says verbatim, and Noah did all as God commanded him. I don't know if he talked back to God about this, you know, are you sure you want me to do this? Are you sure this is the plan? But Noah really did have a beautiful picture um, of obedience there. And you know, because you measured out the ark, there is no way that Noah closed the door himself. Ah. It would have been too big. The Lord shut him in. Yeah, that's in the, the text. Lord, yeah, and it tells us. The scripture tells yeah. us. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's a piece of encouragement. That is really beautiful. So put us in his protected place, and then he will close the door. Mm, that's good. That's really good. Y'all, y'all are teaching this class for me. Yes, yes. Oh, that's really beautiful. I didn't thought about that. Not only Noah didn't close the door, he probably couldn't. Right. Yeah, that would be that'd be massive. It'd be like closing the door to a cruise ship. Right. Right. Mm. You know, there is a museum in Kentucky. I've been um, with my religion class at Furman. It is a life-size ark, and it, it's called the Ark Encounter. And it is, it's a hoot. It is, um, I actually went because my, uh, my professor, he read Genesis allegorically. So we went kind of um, mocking it. That was, that was kind of the plan. But um, I obviously don't agree with his interpretation of Genesis. But it is really awesome. They've got like animatronic animals and, um, you know. You, you just walk through the whole thing, and I think it, I, I can't remember many details of it, but it's something to behold, the Ark Encounter in Kentucky. Highly recommend. All right, well, the bell is tolling, so y'all are free to go, but thank you very much for such good discussion. Really, thank you. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.